Welcome to the most listened to golf in the world, the Fairways of Life show, on air, online, and around the world. With the most candid interviews, unforgettable stories, taking you beyond the ropes. Here's your host, New York Times best-selling author and Golf Channel's Matt Adams. Welcome to the Fairways of Life show, folks. Pleasure to have your company today. Uh, we are super excited because uh, what we have in store for you, I think you're going to be and find extremely interested, interested in and interesting from a subject standpoint. Jim Gallagher Jr. won five times on the PGA Tour. That includes the 1993 Tour Championship. He finished third in the 91 PGA Championship. He was runner-up at the 92 PGA Championship. He played an astounding 546 PGA Tour events. He finished in the top 10 an incredible 50 times. He was a member of the 93 United States Ryder Cup team. He was a member of the 1994 United States President's Cup team. And no doubt you see him often on Golf Channel nowadays. I had the pleasure of his company hosting up there just a few days ago. Uh, and what we like him for, aside from, from being a friend, is the unique perspective that he provides to us with the vast array of golf experience that he possesses. So pleasure to welcome Jim to the program. Jim, how are you? I'm doing great, Matty. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thank you very much. You know, I'm going to throw something at you because I can't help doing it. I even did it the other night when, when you and I were on. You know, at the Masters, it it came down to John Rahm ultimately winning over Brooks Kepka and, and Phil Mickelson, right? Uh, so a European victory. This past weekend, Matt Fitzpatrick wins at the RBC Heritage, uh, another European victory. I'm just going to go back to the start of the year, just start of this calendar year, right? John Rahm wins the Century Tournament Champions. Siwoo Kim wins the Sony Open. John Rahm wins the, at the American Express. Farmers Insurance Open, Max Homa. At the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, Justin Rose. Waste Management, Scotty Scheffler. Genesis, John Rahm. Honda Classic, Chris Kirk at the Arnold Palmer Invitational, Kurt Kitayama, uh, Puerto Rico Open, uh, Nico Echevarria uh, at the Players' Championship, Scotty Scheffler, Valspar, Taylor Moore at the World Golf Championship, Dell Technologies Match Play, Sam Burns, Corrales Punta Cana Championship, Matt Wallace, the Valero Texas Open, Corey Connors, the Masters, of course, John Rahm and the RBC Heritage, as just mentioned, Matt Fitzpatrick. Uh, is it just me or is it impossible to be in a, in a Ryder Cup year and not look at on a micro level every single tournament, and maybe on a macro level with the flow and ebb of winners so far this year, and go, man, it seems pretty balanced, doesn't it? Uh, pretty balanced, I would say, uh, and that's the exciting part. I think the game is such a worldwide game, and I think that's what you're seeing. Uh, you've seen it since uh, these young people, some of them came over, they played college golf over here, and, and I think you see it. That's uh, it, just a game. It's growing everywhere, and there's just such – Somebody's asking me, I guess, yesterday, you know, how many great players were in my era, which, you know, wasn't too long ago. But there's just so many really, really good players. Uh, but it has been a pretty amazing year, and the designated events have not disappointed. We've had some of the top names up there. We talked about uh, just this last week, you know, how many guys would have kind of that Masters hangover. Man, when you look at the leaderboard, there are a ton of guys that played the Masters and still had some – you know, fuel left in the tank. But uh, I really have to commend John Rahm for uh, coming back and, and coming back and playing. He committed to RBC Heritage, and after that big win, it had been real easy for him to say, no, I'm not coming. But he came back, held his commitment. And you know what? His goal after he didn't maybe play as well 
I guess the third day is to finish in the top 10, finished 15th, and, and he gave the fans what they wanted. He, he never quit. And that's for any young person or anybody playing out there. You really have to go every time you're out there. It's an opportunity, and why don't you give it 100%, and, and you should. No matter if you got your best stuff or not, John Rom may not have had his best stuff, uh, but obviously the putter and short game let him down last week. But he gave it 100%, and that's, what, uh, that's why he's such an, becoming such an elite player. Have you noticed, uh, Jim, a maturity in John Rahm, an evolution in his character from the perspective that when he first came out, all we talked about was how fiery he was, the fire that burned inside. We talked about that kind of Spanish passion on the, the world golf stage. Uh, but to my eye, it seemed to me that, that while it was aggressive, the chief characteristic that he displayed in winning that major was patience. Yeah, uh, I I have no problem with fire. I played that way myself. I have to sometimes go back and apologize for some of my actions, uh, you know, but uh, I, I, that was no problem. I think when he became a father, I think family uh, really kind of changed, I, I guess, a little bit. I know it did for me. Things were different in perspective, but uh, I just think that's his just he's driven to be great. That's what makes him elite. Uh, I think that's the definition of elite, that inner drive to separate yourself from the rest. Uh, and, and maybe it did hurt him a little bit with getting angry at times, but I think he was young and a lot was, ex- you know, a lot was expected of himself by himself. And I think that's the biggest thing you look at when you put that much pressure on yourself. But I love to listen to him uh, in the media room. This is a young man that came over, didn't speak any English, uh, kind of taught himself. He listened to rap music. We've all heard the story, but he speaks about as well as most people they speak English as their, you know, their first language. So I think I, to get in there in front of people and be honest, I think that's the difference you see. Uh, nothing seems to be protected. He's very honest in how he thinks and, and how he feels and how he says things. And I, I respect that uh, because a lot of times we don't get that. And we in the press or even public, we just kind of pick on guys as something they say. But if they, they will quit saying it if, if we can't continue to just harp on the things they say. If that's what they believe, then that's what they believe. They're, they're, they have a right to, to believe that. But Jim Gallagher Jr. is my guest, a five-time winner on the PGA Tour. Jimmy, where where exactly are you today? It looks like you're in some type of museum, like a display where George Washington <laughs> was here or something. Well, it's in my wife. It's in the breakfast room at the house, and this is, and behind me is a painting we got that uh, uh, someone made for us. And so those are those are McCarty. Uh, plates behind us and that's something they have here in the Mississippi Delta that's uh, pretty cool stuff uh, pottery or whatever but my wife would be proud that I made this little set behind me uh, by myself without it's her very impressive. here so. yeah, I just want to know usually... what time the tours start well, well I just woke up so the tour's over <laughs> Jim you you had mentioned this a second ago you you mentioned media uh, obviously you're talking mm-hmm. about golf media and I thought it was interesting because here you are as an individual that has gone from being a prominent tour player, uh, Dom, you tell me how many players, you'll look it up for us and give me a number in my, in my IFB here in a second, how many people all time have won five or more times on the PGA Tour? We'll get that number. But my question is, to make, to make a move from being a prominent tour player to being now a person that works in golf media and it is your job to give your opinion Mm -hmm. on a whole variety of different subjects. Was that in any way a difficult transition for you? You talked about when you were playing and the passion that you displayed. And sometimes you had to go back and say, Hey, sorry for me losing myself here or there. 
Have you had a time yet from a media side where, where you felt the weight of you making a comment and someone caught you later on and went, hey, dude, why? Yeah, absolutely. I think it really happened early on. I, I kind of quit playing full-time in 2000, took the job with USA Network doing Thursday and Friday coverage, and my role started as a walker into a whole announcer then the analyst. And, and these guys were guys I was still playing with, I and mean, these were some of my friends. But you, there's a difference with – with not getting personal uh, and criticizing and not is, is something I try not to do. Critiquing is something I do. So I obviously have to say it. It's a little more comfortable, I guess, right now because I'm separated from playing with a lot of these guys. I still know them and, and, and gotten to know some of these young guys, but there's a time when you have to make up your opinion. I mean, whether you want to talk about live golf and those things, uh, you know, that when that first came out, that was a very, obviously a controversial uh, subject and the problem I had with a lot of them if you want to take the money go it was just when they were criticizing the PGA Tour the avenue and the vessel that allowed them to do the things and, and, and have these careers that was my issue with most of it and the first day I found out we were going to talk about it and Phil Mickelson some of his comments I, I wasn't a hundred percent prepared but I had to kind of give that opinion that's what I went with it uh, I, I know when you guys are hosts you ask me questions I kind of waffle around the answer and then you have to really hold me to the fire to give the answer. But sometimes it's a little uncomfortable to, to criticize somebody because I know how hard the game is. But then my job is to also critique it, not criticize. And I think that's what I try to separate. All right. So Dom told me it's less than 200 uh, humans all time that have won five or more times on the PGA Tour, which is remarkable when you think about how long events have been played on the stature of the PGA Tour. I'm not just talking about from when the PGA Tour was formed. I'm talking about all the events that go all the way back to the early 1900s. All right, so when you mention live, Jim, Mm -hmm. is not the game of golf at its highest competitive levels better for the fact that live golf came about? I think it got a lot of people's attention. Uh, You know, we can argue the social part of it, and I I didn't really take that kind of line as some people did. Uh, I understand why guys did it. For some guys, it was general generation changing money. Now we can sit here and argue where the money comes from, but our country does business with those folks. That's another side of the argument. But I think it got the PGA Tour's attention. Uh, it it kind of rallied the PGA Tour players, the top players, to, that stayed there. To hey, we're going to bring out this good product. Uh, so you know, maybe these guys. Obviously, these guys financially benefited both sides from uh, live coming apart. Uh, the thing is, they when they talk about the world rankings, there's a system in, in place, whether it's right or wrong. I, I, you know, we could argue that all day long, but uh, I think that was their big thing. They want the points and equal points uh, to kind of be in there. But when these guys all get together, like they did at the Masters, it's fun to watch them all. But you can't argue from the PGA Tour side, the designated events. They've uh, been the best of the best that are on the PGA Tour, and they've been exciting to see. And these guys are playing for so much money. Well, I mean, but but it brings me back to that central question. Would these designated events, would these changes have happened if it were not for Liv? Probably not. Maybe would have been in time. The tour says it was there, but I don't know that I truly 100% believe it happened this fast. There may have been. Uh, my fear, not fear, but concern was that they were going to separate this into a two-tier tour. You and I worked together those couple of days when – things came out. I was saying, all right, we're going to have the upper guys and the rest of the guys. And I get the point. Uh, I've been one of the top players. I've also been down there 
in the 70 to 125. Uh, and it takes everybody to make it a true tour. But there's access to these events uh, through the different qualifying, the top 50. We go through all that if you, if, when we do. But I, I, you and I were both concerned about the fall events. I was really concerned because the Sanderson Farms uh, Championship, which is in my home state in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, the money that's generated through uh, that tournament over a million dollars, I believe every year goes to the Children's uh, Hospital of Mississippi uh, and at Batson Hospital. So I think that's those tournaments, and I think that's what maybe separates somewhat is the tournaments. It's not the PGA Tour. It's the tournaments that donate the money and the sponsors and the people and the volunteers that donate the money to the local charities uh, there. It's not the PGA Tour giving money out of their purse and out of their kitty or whatever. Uh, and that's those tournaments. So I, I think they benefit maybe from the designated event. But look what it did to the heritage. Look at the people that were out there uh, being a designated event. They, yeah, they, they you know, supported it in the past, but that was phenomenal uh, support. And good for them because they were a tournament that was falling to the wayside. That's what's always bothered me. I guess it did bother me with tournaments like Milwaukee where I won, Kingsmill where I won. They went away. Uh, and these are some of these tournaments where they're 30, 40, 50, 60 years and more. Uh, I worry that because there's so much money that some of these tournaments that have been around for a long time, if they don't come up with the money, they would just go away. Uh, and it ultimately gets down, you know, being a designated event, if you can come up with all the money, come up with the 20 million, you can be one. Uh, the concern is how about the tournaments that aren't in there too, uh, that are just the regular events in, in, in their field. So it's a very complicated uh, time, but if you're a top 50 player, you love it, obviously. You know, the, the good thing though, Jim, with that, and, and again, with the amount of time that you and I have worked together, we've seen it and witnessed it and been able to enjoy it and be entertained by it, certainly, is that you look at events like the Honda, you, you know, just going off this year, you look at events like the Honda, you look at, you look at the, the Valspar, uh, you, you look at uh, the Zurich with, with the team competition and, and the fun there. What it shows you is, is a couple of things. One is the depth of the PGA Tour, whether it is or is not a designated event, whether it does or does not perhaps have all of the top 20 or top 30 or 28 of 30 or whatever calculation you want of the top players in the world we can still be wildly entertained because of the quality mm -hmm. of the players that are there. And I think for the non-designated events on the PGA Tour, and certainly for the way we're going to be set up for what will be the new FedEx Fall Series, I think we've got a lot to look forward to because we know that, especially when we talk about the fall, just because you alluded to it, I want to circle back. When we talk about what will be the new fall, you've got guys that are going to be battling to keep their jobs uh, not merely, yeah. you know, uh, ranking points and, and, and how they how it all shuffles out. But you're talking about guys that will or will not be playing in the big leagues. I don't know. I, I just for me as a golf junkie, I guess, as a tour junkie, I, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, there's a lot of excitement for these guys. Uh, the I like the fact that tour school came back. I wish there were more spots for that because that, that was always the drama of that. But the, you look at the storylines. There's always storylines. You can't get rid of it. I've talked to. Uh, Todd Thompson, who's the RSM uh, tournament chairman there, and he's a good buddy of mine. And I said, what do you think of the tournament? He goes, I love it. I love the fact that we are uh, the last event, that some of these guys are trying to get into designated events. I love the fact that some of these guys uh, trying to keep their cars, so many storylines. And who's, you know, these guys that are at the bottom half, these are the future stars. Not everybody walks out as, as an instant star. So, yeah. you know, we could be seeing some of the instant stars uh, from those spots because they got to start somewhere. 
I, I always like to make sure we keep access for the college kids coming in, or that's why tour school is good. Although, although going straight to the Corn Ferry Tour is nothing wrong because you learn to live the life. And what I mean by that, sure, you got your car, but can you uh, do the things, that, to have the discipline to do the things to be, prepare yourself, to do the things that off the golf course to kind of keep you ready and learn uh, on the Corn Ferry Tour? You don't want to stay out there long because you're not going to make a whole lot of money. It's going to be difficult, but I think for uh, a lot of these guys uh, that are coming up, we're seeing some of the future stars coming out of there, and that's the exciting part of it. Golf's, you know, in su- was in such a good spot, and then Liv kind of fractured it for a while, but I think it's kind of healing itself. There's still people going to kind of stir it up, but they've gone on. They're doing their thing, and but the PGA Tour product right now has been pretty solid. When you list that names of names, pretty good uh, group of names that have been winning at the top of the leaderboard. Yeah, and it, to your point, too, whether we're talking about Todd Thompson, you know, the tournament director at the RSM or any of those fall events, not only are you going to see these young upstarts that will become stars. It's not a question mm-hmm. of if some of them, it'll be a percentage, but it, some of them will become stars in PGA Tour. But you're also going to see the veterans that maybe are trying to hold on to their game or they've overcome some type of injury or illness and they're going to try to cling and, and get back in there again. So you've always got this balance, which, which is exciting. You, you made a comment uh, the other night when we were on Golf Channel that I loved. We were, we were talking in terms of you and I are both fans of Q School and, mm-hmm. and the pressure that it was and the six days of, of stomach-churning pressure. But you, you made the, the, the comment that this is almost like, I think you said 28 weeks, if, if memory serves me, of Q school going through mm. what will be the new fall, which I think is a really cool way to look at it. Absolutely. Uh, I like it as a fan side. I didn't like it as a player as much, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you get punched in the gut so many times. But it is, in essence, the good news is you're making money when you play well, too. Uh, but it is like a tour school. Uh, you've got several weeks. I like the fact that they're kind of separated out. Steve Gent here at Sanderson Farms, our, our tournament, he was excited actually. And I was like, but I was, you know, because we didn't know what the schedule was going to be. He obviously knew maybe more things than we did. He says, now I got a chance to maybe get a, a top, you know, a guy 50 to 70 or a guy 70 to 100 that we weren't always getting. But there, you look at the list, there's some guys that need some big weeks to get in that top 50, to get in that top 70. Uh, but those those fall events are, in essence, like a pretty strong tour school. Uh, kind of like the playoffs for Corn Ferry Tour. That was sort of like the tour school, but that one week, actually you're going through all the stages, but that one week watching guys go through that, uh, for the fan, you actually had the inside of how difficult it is, and not everybody's making millions of dollars and flying on private planes. It's just a lot of guys just trying to survive. Uh, and that's the, that's still the beauty that still kind of exists now. There's no doubt about that. And that's the vast majority of the guys. I mean, I, I can't think of how many players that we've had on this show over the years, got to know them, had them on with regularity, like people like, uh, for example, a Joel Damon, who was mm-hmm. on the air with us telling us that he's having trouble making, uh, making his rent payments back in the day. So it's, yeah. it's not that just getting to the top tiers means that your road is paved with gold. It's there's, there's still a lot of hard work that goes along with it. Uh, I'm going to ask you Jim for a second to put your player hat back on for a second here. Okay. The rollback of the golf ball. Is it necessary? I, I personally don't like it. What other thing do we do in life where we want to go backwards? Uh, I wouldn't have a problem if you want to stop it where it is, but 
you know, the equipment companies are so far uh, advanced, they'll find a way to figure it all out. Uh, the argument that we're running out of space, yeah, possibly, but you look at last week. Now, the scores were great because the wind was good, but usually that golf course holds its own. Valspar is a golf course that usually holds its own. They're not shooting 30 under. Uh, be interested to see all these. Uh, we're concerned about the ball going too far. Yeah, it's it's going a long way. Uh, you still have to get it done, but I'm not a fan of it. I wouldn't mind if you wanted to, you know, obviously a way we would think about it is you put spin on the ball and kind of make it a little tougher to, to hit it straight and all those things too, but uh, I'm not a 100% fan of it. I think it's really remarkable to watch these guys play. Uh, grow some rough if you can. Make it a little bit firmer if you can. You know, the weather dictates that, but it's okay every once in a while for these guys to get wedges in and, and uh, make them think around there. But there are courses that exist. I think if we all went with the cookie-cutter, big, wide-open golf courses, then you may have a problem with it. But uh, uh, when it came out, I wasn't as much a fan. I mean, you'd have to go through the whole bag to stop these guys from hitting it too far. They'll find a way of doing it. Uh, that's just how advanced the game is in, in these equipment companies. And these guys are athletes, too. The one factor, and I mean, I think they try to factor it in, is these guys are athletes uh, working out and doing things, uh, using the technology that's out there more than so than what I did. And I think that's what you have seen at the college level. We didn't work out in college, college golf. Uh, like they do now. They're four or five days a week doing some form of a workout. So I think that's part of it. Uh, fitness guys are, you know, all of them are doing it. And you have to to stay in shape uh, and stay in contention because if you're not, they're going to pass you. So that's a factor, a major factor there. I think it's also why these guys hit it further as well. You know, I, I remember having a conversation with Mark Carnevale, the 1992 PGA Tour mm. Rookie of the Year, and another a friend of both of ours. And Carney told me that he actually doesn't like the modern equipment as much because he finds it much harder to work the golf ball. Oh, yeah. You can't work the golf ball. I'll tell you what's weird is you go out and hit a wooden driver with the modern golf ball and you may get it, you know, quail high. Uh, <laughs> it's really it's really strange. I mean, we would go back and play the old uh, uh, Tour Ballada or a, or a Maxfly HT and hit it with the modern clubs. It'd be amazing. Like, but yeah, here's another thing for the, everybody out there amazing. listening. We all... We all know the irons, all the lofts are jacked up. You're not hitting your nine iron as far as you were. Your nine, your pitching wedge, now I'm seeing 45, 45, 46, 44 uh, degrees in pitching wedge. That was a nine iron, almost getting to an eight iron. So uh, there's a little trickery there with how far the ball is going with the irons but because uh, everything's jacked up. But equipment's so good. I mean, they've just, they've, they've, they're able to get these drivers dialed in, and they would find a way. Uh, if the ball went back to get the drivers dialed in where they would still go plenty far. Uh, I don't think that would, it would be a, a thing they could stop. Do you think Jimmy with all coming out of the, the, the Ryder cup, there was mm -hmm. so much talk and a lot of venom uh, for Patrick Cantlay with the pace of play. And I'm, and I'm not necessarily looking to, to, to go after Patrick Cantlay at, sure. at this question. It's more about pace of play in general. Does the general public, have grounds for a vested interest in the pace of play at a professional event? And if so, what should be done about pace of play? I think we all uh, want to play faster. The game was, you know, played faster. Uh, a lot of it is you're not ready to hit when it's your turn. I think that's part of the problem on the PGA Tour college level. Uh, I, I watch college players, both on the men and women, and it's just so much coaching. And I, I, I'm not picking on the coaches. It's just too much coaching. There's too much they're trying to gather all this information, uh, and a lot of times they're not ready to hit when it's their turn. 
uh, yeah, I, I was a fast player, so I'm going to say let's play faster. And I had to find ways to not let the slow players bother me. And Dr. Richard Coop, who's a <clears throat> worldwide sports psychologist, worked with a lot of the North Carolina athletes. He, he just would say, go find something to do in between shots, whether you go look in the lake and or look up in there and just enjoy being out there, something. And I did. I mean, I, I they drove me crazy. But I had to figure out a way, and you went back to John Ramos, how to be patient. And that was a big struggle for me. It was a big advantage for them. I always tease uh, Glenn Day, who I love, one of my dear friends, that he would have never won the Heritage had he not been paired with me the first two days. Uh, and we know the pace that he plays. And, and I'm not picking on Glenn, but he knows he's slow. And, and most of the slow players are the nicest people in the world. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's a big thing for the people out in public is when it's your turn, be ready to hit. Uh, and I think that would help the pace of play quite a bit. Did you did you ever bring your comments up? I, mean, I know you did, but I'm asking for this forum with the PGA Tour. And have you seen any real effort to try to move up and fasten the, make the game faster? Uh, I mean, until you start penalizing guys with strokes, they're not going to move. Uh, I mean, money doesn't affect most of these guys unless you just made it ridiculous. But yeah, but the players are kind of pushing the rules too of how it is. But I would say you start penalizing with strokes, that gets everybody's attention. But then it's a fine line. There's certain situations that, like Patrick Cantlay, uh, when he was on 14 at the bulkhead, I was okay with him taking time there. He had to make a decision. It's maybe back on the tee where maybe he's slower uh, and not ready and, you know, dilly dadding around, trying to figure out what club it is. I mean, it's a basic shot. It's not that difficult that it would take that long. But, uh, you know, groups get on the clock. I don't even know the rule because I haven't played uh, on the PGA Tour as far as the pace of play. But I think the one thing that gets people's attention is penalty shots. That's what gets everybody's attention if you would get those. Fascinating stuff. That last question I want to ask you about here, and we thank you very, very much for oh, your yeah. considerable time that you've given us, Jim, as always. Uh, when I when you heard me open this up and I was talking about just since the start of the calendar year, I, I'll go from the start of this of this uh, season for the PGA Tour, and I'm just going to throw a bunch of names at you. McElroy, Rahm, Rose, Fitzpatrick, Wallace, Power, Hovland, all of the names that I just ran through there have a legitimate shot at being on the European Ryder Cup team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go Homa, Bradley, Henley, Finau, uh, Scheffler, et cetera, et cetera, on the PGA Tour and have a similar conversation about those players being on the American Ryder Cup team. As we are in a Ryder Cup year, the Ryder Cup, of course, will be held outside of Rome this year. Is it just – Is it? I know you talked about it in terms of the power of the global game and players coming from far corners of the earth all, but it just seems like it's already setting itself up for this, for this head-to-head battle between Europe and the United States, even with what we're seeing in the performance of players throughout the course of the, this season so far. Yeah, well, you would have looked after the President's Cup, you said, well, you know, Americans are going to walk away with it, uh, just how strong they were, but the European players are playing well. It gets down to the depth of the team. Uh, USA is probably a little deeper right now, but their their top players of Europe are playing well. They're kind of in the same position when I played in '93, where their top players were great. They just weren't as deep, and the American team still had a lot of experience and was fairly, you know, pretty deep. Those worlds switched for many, many years, and Europe dominated it. Uh, but you're seeing a lot of the American guys came together the last couple Ryder Cups, Presidents Cup, and you see a newer team. 
coming in. Their their depth is amazing, but uh, it gets down to depth, and, and I think that might be the ultimate. But as far as the, the top players on both sides are playing fantastic, especially on the European side. So it might be closer than people think, but we still got some time to go. It's going to be fascinating to see uh, how that all turns out. I, I love the Ryder Cup. It was a time in my life that really changed my career. I think from the fact that it allowed me to believe in myself that I could play on any stage. And it helped me win the Tour Championship later that fall, no question about it. I wouldn't have won it had I not had the success at the Ryder Cup. And when people say, you know, my fondest memory of golf, it's not my life. My life is my kids and my grandkids. But as far as, uh, you know, favorite movement in golf, the wins were fantastic. But the Ryder Cup, it was it, man. It was the jelly on the, on the toast. It was beautiful. Where's the where's the sweater that we're showing on the television screen right now that you're wearing? It's uh it's in a uh, it's in my closet. I wouldn't bring it out. It probably wouldn't fit this big mammoth uh, workout body chiseled body that you see. <laughs> so we don't bring it out. Put it on. I may have to put it on just to see if it can get it up over my belly. <laughs> I love it, Jimmy. Uh, thank you so much again for your time. Your voice is an important one. We love sharing. Uh, your your views with the world and uh, very much want to get you back on as we get closer to Absolutely. the Ryder Cup to talk more about your experiences, particularly your uh, your your singles play uh, against Seve back in the day. But we'll get into that story as we move on down the road. Again, thanks thanks for the time. It's always great to catch up. Thanks. You and Dom call me anytime. I love working with you. I love being on with you. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, sir. Uh, the Fairways of Life show is presented by the PGA Tour Superstore. You're talking about 60 big, beautiful stores spread out from coast to coast, where inside of them, yes, you can get absolutely anything that you're looking for for your game. And what's even better is whether you swing it, whether you wear it, whether you can learn from it, whether you're tested against it, whatever it is, you're working with absolute pros you can't shop with the pros at the pga tour superstore make it your happy place and get started just by logging on to pga tour superstore.com and checking out everything that they have in store easy now find your happy place the pga tour superstore it's all in the hips where every swing is possible. Just tap it in. Yes! (laughs) Find all the latest gear, apparel, and personalized club fittings. Is this goodbye? We've only just begun. Shop with the pros at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. In Ireland, golf is more than just a game. Come and experience our world-famous Lynx courses and our world-famous Parkland courses all set alongside world-famous scenery and visit our world-famous historic sites. And while you're here, enjoy our world-famous hospitality. Fill your heart with Ireland at ireland.com forward slash golf. It screams. It tracks. It's soft. It reacts. It is the Bridgestone Tour B with a game-changing reactive cover designed to spring faster off your driver and stick longer to your wedges. Try Bridgestone's Tour Bs. The Tour Ball reinvented. Nothing feels quite like hitting a PXG iron. That's because we use hollow body construction coupled with the thinnest club face in golf and a vibration-absorbing polymer. 
These technologies make hitting our irons feel soft as warm butter on a hot biscuit and create a bigger sweet spot, which means more forgiveness, better distance, and lower scores. Play PXG and see how sweet, real power, and incredible forgiveness can be. PXG, nobody makes golf clubs the way we do, period. Baseball? Nah. Football? Done it. I think I'm going to go after the PGA Tour. Bo, you're going to need the right equipment company. I think I got that. You know Tour Edge backs all their clubs with a lifetime warranty. I know. They ship all their premium custom clubs in 48 hours. I know. All their premium clubs are hand-built in the USA. I know. You know Tour Edge has won 35 times out here. Guys, I know. Pound for pound, nothing comes close. This is the Wiz. It tracks your swing in real time. Got it. One zero one gives you feedback in real time. Instead of guessing, I get the direct feedback. The Wiz have really helped me to keep that consistent swing. You can go out there on your own and just hit balls, and it'll fix your golf game. Transition on plane. The Wiz sold exclusively at thewizgolf.com. Welcome back to the Fairways of Life show. Pleasure to have your company from wherever you are joining us. I have massive respect for our next guest. and super excited to welcome Michael Bamberger to the show. He's a name that's synonymous with golf journalism. If you are a golfer, no doubt you have read his insights over the course of decades as one of the top writers in the game, decorated at that. Surely you've met, read some of his best-selling books as well. Uh, his he has authored multiple books over the course of the years as well. And he is a senior writer now for the Fire Pit Collective. Either way, you, you know that this man knows his golf. And we are absolutely thrilled to have him joining us today for a number of different reasons. Not the least of which is that he has a new book out now. It's called The Ball in the Air, a Golfing Adventure. There's a copy of his book. And so with that, it's a pleasure to welcome Michael Bamberg to the show. How are you, sir? Matt, delighted. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's funny when you know when you hear the word decades associated with your name. It is funny, but it is true because I've been doing this since since the mid '80s. Uh, actually, maybe even a little earlier. And just earlier, I was listening to uh, the Golfers Journal has a podcast, and they had a guy on talking about Bernard Darwin, and they talked about how Herb Wind knew Bernard Darwin, but I knew Herb Wind. Uh, so I mean, you know, the line it's. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I know all these young writers coming up, Dylan DeCheer and Son, Sean Zock and all these other guys. So a little bit like on the playing side, we have our own thing going on on the writing side, just like you guys do in the teaching side and the equipment side, where we're always handing down the game from one generation to the next. So when I hear the word decades, it triggers a lot for me. But anyway, thank you so much for having me. It's absolute honor to have you on the show, Michael. Is there any concern on your part from from the standpoint of you were talking about a lot of good writers, and there are a lot of good young writers out there. I think about Ryan Lavner, et cetera, to add to the list that you've already shared. Sure. Is there any reason to be concerned though, in terms of where and you can and this could be journalism at large outside of just the game of golf or sport or specific to the game of golf that media, and I use that with rabbit ears is changing and and now we have groups that actively openly call themselves fanalists and they're attracting massive amounts of attention and following and then they they take on a quasi role where they are hosting podcasts and, and disseminating opinions and news 
uh, from a from a purely journalistic standpoint, I'm talking about institutional learning of what journalism is in terms of being balanced and, and finding your data, et cetera, et cetera, uh, get, getting to sources. Is that shifting in today's world? Well, it's a very sophisticated and insightful question, Matt. And I would say it absolutely is. Um, there's way more pontificating now than there ever has been. And as you say, collecting data, you know, reporting, actual getting some information uh, has been never has is less valued in a culture where the so-called journalist is really a, uh, a sort of celebrity uh, of a sort. Um, and when you go down that road, then the more outrageous your opinions are, uh, the bigger fan base you're going to have, the more clicks and all the rest. So, yes, it's a very dangerous road that we're on. And unfortunately, I don't really see a way back to what we used to have, which was much more fact-based reporting. I mean, I would I would assume if we went back into into your history and say we go back to, you know, Sports Illustrated days, somewhere you had an editor where as a young guy you came up and said, geez, I, I heard this or I'm, I'm chasing this or what have you. And your editor said to you, Michael, who are your sources and, and what balance are you bringing to the story in terms of getting both opinions? I'm just curious if you can ca- kind of cast back to to those times and experiences. Sure. Like I'll, I'll just very quickly, I'll, I'll go back to what, one of my first stories. It's I had been a reporter on the Vineyard Gazette and Marcus Vineyard, then nine years at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And then I joined Sports Illustrated. I must've been in my mid or early thirties. And my very first assignment was, and, and you'll remember this map, but many of your, your, your viewers would not. <clears throat> my very, one of my very first stories, I think my second story actually was this controversy over which, by which, uh, Greg Norman basically accused Mark McCumber of cheating during the, uh, I think it was called the World Series of Golf then at Firestone. Uh, do you remember this, Matt? Mm-hmm. What, what I'm speaking of? Yep, I do. do. You do remember? So, um, I mean, that's that's the most serious charge there is in our game, right? right? And how, how are you going to sort through the facts when you literally have a set of he said, he said, and the evidence is uh, in question? Uh, so, I mean, I went to Norman, I went to McCumber, I went to other people who had played with McCumber over the years. Uh, I went to the rules officials who were there. I went to the course superintendent and gathered as much information as I possibly could so that the reader could decide for himself or herself what actually happened there. And that is, you know, it, for a reporter, it's a dream. It's a dream to have a job at a place where they're saying, take as much time as you need to get us the story because the story is important. And then and then do the story carefully, thoroughly, and 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 fairly. I'm always fascinated by by two things, Michael. One is the question of if you could go back to a young Michael Bamberger that's just starting down this pathway. If you could go back to that young man and give him some advice, what would that advice be? Well. <laughs> This is probably goes beyond, uh, you know, my life as a uh, reporter and a writer, but uh, don't worry so much. Uh, I'm a worrier. I, I know we have a mutual friend, Jaime Diaz. Jaime's a worrier. Most reporters I know have the worry gene. It's useful. Uh, but now that I'm in my, you know, I turned 63 the other day. 
I'd try to worry less and hang out more. I think that would be my main advice because when you, when you get to be in your uh, in your early sixties, uh, first off, you realize it goes way too fast. <clears throat> Pardon me. And um, the greatest joy of it all is being with your family, being with your friends, comparing ideas, trying to learn something every day, trying to learn something from from other people, and worry just sort of gets in the way. Having said that, I want to make a nod towards worry because worry does get stuff done. You know, if you're worried, if, uh, look, this happened all the time in Sports Illustrated. Uh, you're covering a British Open. Sergio could win or Ernie could win or Tiger could win. And you're okay if Tiger wins. But what happens if uh, Chris DeMarco wins? you got nothing on Chris DeMarco. So you worry about Chris DeMarco, so you start getting his story, talking to his coach and his family, whatever else. So worry is useful, but I would be a little bit – I'd have more moderation about it, if that makes any sense. Well, here's the second half to that that was mentioned to two things. And this would be where you tell me the age, 12 years old, 15 years old, 18 years old. What would that young Michael Bamberger think about who you have become? Wow, these are fun questions. Um, you know, even at, uh, even at 11 or 10, 9 – I was smitten by newspapers and being a newspaper reporter. That was my live stream. Uh, I had only really, and even this might be an overstatement, a vague core competency of one thing, which is, you know, reporting and writing. So I went, so my life has gone down uh, the path professionally that, uh, that, that I thought it might, the devotion to sports and golf, that was sort of a happy accident along the way. Um, I never, I don't think I would have ever seen myself becoming sort of, uh, you know, I grew up in, with very close parents and, and, and just one sibling and my wife and I have had a great marriage for a long time and we have two kids. So like a lot of families, you know, we're Christine's family, the same, we're sort of modeling what our own families had. And that's been the greatest joy uh, uh, of my life. Um, uh, it's really a, it's really a neat question, Matt. Um, I think I thought uh, the life would be more of a vagabond life because so many reporting lives are. And I've been lucky to have long stints, like at the Inquirer and Sports Illustrated and other places. But uh, it's been it's been a joyful life. The career itself, which I know is the main thing that you're you're asking about here, um, has brought me so much joy. And you know, the, there was a development very much in our lifetime. <clears throat> of email. Email has been great for me because I hear from readers all the time. I don't do any other social media. I don't do any social media, but I love hearing from the readers. I love writing back to them. And I love that, that correspondence. I could have never, I could have never imagined such a thing. You know, we grew up in an era of, I'm not comparing your age to mine, Matt. I know I'm a lot older than you, but still we both grew up in an era of actual letter writing. So this email thing has been a development uh, I never imagined. When, when you write a book, Michael, and, and Michael's new book is called The Ball on the Air, A Golfing Adventure. Um, but when you write a book, to me, it's – I'm going to put this down so you guys can get a good look at this uh, book here. It's a little bit, to me, like, like taking a piece of your soul and, and putting it on a serving tray and handing it to the rest of the world, and you hope that it will be well-received. There's always an insecurity, I think, that, that's associated with particularly a book for some reason, more so than any, anything else in my view that I've written. And this book for you, if I may, for a guy that has covered professional golf for so long, 
is about amateur golf. And I'm, I'm curious what led you down this path, uh, although I suspect it's, it's a lifetime of experiences. But what led you down the path in this particular book? Well, that, that's another insightful question because it's a big, and I, I know you've written a number of books, Matt. It, um, it's a big ask. It's an egotistical ask to say, I'm going to commit something to paper. And, you know, for some readers, they would read a, a book like this in maybe eight hours or 10 hours. But for, for some who read slowly, it could take them a month to read the book, whatever it might be. It's a big ask to say, I want you to spend your time with me and I'm going to make it worth your while. It, there's a, it's an egotistical ask. So I'm very aware of what I'm asking the reader to do. And I'm very cognizant of his or her time and that I've got to do something valuable, valuable with that time. There's really a responsibility on my part to try to enrich the reader and try to transport the reader. In this particular book, you know, I've written books where I had one book where Arnold and, and Ken Venturi, you know, very much carried the story. I wrote another book about uh, Tiger Woods or another book about a, <clears throat> a well-known film director named M. Night Shyamalan, the guy who made The uh, Sixth Sense. And there's sort of a built-in audience for that kind of book. But here, as you're saying, it's about three amateur, this particular book is about three amateur golfers, none of them well-known. So there's even bigger obstacles to saying to the reader, Join me for this journey because I think it's going to be worth your time. Um, the impetus for this particular book really came directly from my editor, longtime editor at Simon Schuster named Jofi Ferrari Adler. And Jofi saw, this is last year, Jofi saw Live Rising and all this angst over where professional golf is right at this moment. And he had this idea that wouldn't this be a great time to celebrate the amateur game? And, um, and I think it's sort of a shame in our, in our culture that there are millions of us who love golf. And of course, professional golf, you know, they're the high priests of what we try to do, but they literally represent the 0.000001% of all golfers. And what gets lost along the way is us, you know, those of us trying to break a hundred. Um, and uh, so Joe day was, let's, how about a book that celebrates amateur golf? And that got down, that got me down the path of writing this particular book. Do you feel that that this particular book, The Ball in the Air, did this book write itself or did you write it? Well, you always wind up writing them. Uh, uh, what, what, what is your experience, Matt? Have you ever had a book that wrote itself? I I have a different experience, I think, with writing than than you have. You're you're you have a natural elegance and 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 it. I sense a flow with me writing a book is like smashing a pane glass window and trying to put it back together shard by shard. Okay. I hear it. Uh, my thing is a little bit like that, but because you do a lot of different things in your professional life. I do one thing. And my thing is just sit, keep typing. It's probably lousy, but maybe you can make it better later. And that, that, you know, when I <laughs> try to make it better writing yeah that's that's sort of what i told me just by the way i hear i love when this happens tiger woods will play with some guy who's ranked 496 in the world the guys tiger's never heard of the guy the guy will play you know they get paired randomly on a saturday in a major whatever it might be and tiger always says the same thing stay at it and uh i mean what more really can one do except for uh, uh stay at it with the advent of ai it is scary how when you talk about you know a book writing itself how that is starting to happen and some of the emotion 
that artificial intelligence writing is bringing to the writing process. Even having said that, I don't think we'll, first of all, always know that it was written by a machine. It will never have the heart and the soul. But no, you, you, you sit there and you write it. But, and this is a really big but, for what I do writing nonfiction, you get and you need an enormous amount of help. In this case, I've got three characters in the book, a young woman, a middle-aged man, an older man. And I'm telling their stories. And if they didn't trust me with their stories, if they weren't willing to, you know, I went back to the well again and again and again, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. I want to understand on a deeper level. So so it's their stories shaped through my own view of the world and then trying to make it meaningful, you know, to you, Matt, as a reader, anybody else. Uh, it's it's a great time to pick up a copy of The Ball in the Air. Uh, go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever fine books are sold. Remember, we're just around the corner from Mother's Day and Father's Day, and it would be a brilliant uh, gift for anyone in those categories. And And it's available in all of the different ways that books are distributed. Now, for me, uh, as, as Michael is explaining from an old-school perspective, I love holding the book in my hand and being able to, to, to read it just like wherever you are, an airplane or in a train or, or whatever your, your travels take you. Uh, Michael, in general with the game right now, the game of golf, and you measure this any way you want to, is there more sunshine in the sky or more dark clouds? It- uh, the game is the, the ordinary golfer plays it, or in the professional game, or would you like a little of both? I'd like a little of both. I want to cast this net as wide as possible. Okay. Well, I think our game, the amateur game, just the regular Joe golfer. You know, in, in my almost fifty years of playing golf, it's never been better. There's never been more access to equipment for people who are starting out, no matter what your income level is. I mean, you can literally get on eBay you know, and find a beginner set of clubs that will absolutely do the job for, you know, under a hundred dollars. You can go on YouTube and learn a proper grip. You can learn Hogan swing for free via YouTube. Uh, public courses are in much better shape than they used to be. Uh, all manner of cities. We saw this last week at Augusta national, Augusta national is going to put a lot of uh, the city of Augusta has got a wonderful public course called the patch. It's really great. Just the way it is. It's a little baked out, rough around the edges. Um, there's going to be a cooperative thing between Augusta National and and this public course called the Patch, the Augusta Municipal Golf Course, uh, to fix it to fix it up. But it's not just Augusta. I mean, that's happening in Philadelphia, where I live. It's happening all over the country. Uh, tee sheets are filled. We saw after the pandemic, people are coming to golf in droves. We have this need. You know, our lives are we're, we're not getting out as much as we used to. So many people work at home. Um, we have this need to be with other people and this need to be outdoors. What could fulfill that better than, than this game that, you know, has captivated your life and my life, man, the professional game. And this is, and even this is now because there's the LPGA and there's all the mini tours and all the rest, but just to focus on the thing that's getting so much attention and understandably so, and understandably so the live PGA tour divide has exposed golf in a way it's never been exposed before and maybe has developed moved golf into a place it's never been before where golf to me has always looked sort of special where like the game and its traditions and handing down the game one generation to the next always seems to take precedence over me 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 
this period where there's been this enormous influx of money, and by the way, this money always comes from someplace that is the fan, the fan winds up paying for it, has shown a underbelly of greed and lack of gratitude uh, that I have found very, uh, uh, very troubling. And, um, and I like, let's say, let's say Phil Mickelson was on the show right now and Phil said, well, you don't understand, you know, they were stockpiling money that should have come to me. Um, I had all of these ideas and they weren't listening to me. Um, you know, there's many different arguments to be made that PJ tour is getting stale that, you know, there were reasons why this live tour could emerge, uh, uh, when it did. And I can understand that. I can even be sympathetic to that. But the way it's unfolded has, I think, been a stain on the game. And I thought it was, you know, just kind of, I mean, they did a great job at the Masters uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago of bringing everybody together. But still, I think overall, I think it's going to confuse the golf watching public. I think we're going to, you know, in the years to come, we're going to go, golf's going to go more the way of tennis. Like, I love tennis, but I barely understand professional tennis except for the four Grand Slam events played each year. Where the guys, where the women and the men played the rest of the year, I kind of don't really even understand it, what tour they're on or, or not. I think golf might go that way. On the other hand, there are people like Mark King, the former TaylorMade chief, who says, you know, in five years from now, there'll just be another tour. There'll be this other tour with their shorter events and, you know, fewer players in the field, and there'll be the PJ Tour and there'll be the European Tour. So it, it will take time to see it. But I guess really the point I'm trying to make it, not the risk of getting too long-winded and, and, and running far field here, but the underlying spirit of the rules of golf is that you have your needs as a golfer, but they're not above or below the needs of anybody else's in the, in, in, in the field. Professional golf at, in large has sort of taken that same view that you are, let, let, me, let me make it much simpler. The ultimate view, I knew Arnold, I spent a lot of time with Arnold in his, in his last years. Arnold had a big ego, like all superstars do. Um, the world revolved around Arnold. But, and this is a very big, very, very big but, Arnold, at the end of the day, never put the game above himself. And that is ultimately why he was so successful and why the game prospered so much in the Arnold years. And I would say the same of Jack, and I would say the same of Tom Watson, Curtis Strange, and various others. I would say the same of Greg Norman um, in, in his playing day. Right now, I'm not sure I would be able to say the same thing. Absolutely fascinating insight from Michael Bamberger, legendary writer, best-selling author. His new book is called The Ball in the Air. Pick it up at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever fine books are sold. Again, uh, don't forget, just around the corner, we have Mother's Day, we have Father's Day, uh, then the holidays right behind that. It would be a perfect gift for anybody that truly loves the game of golf. Now, uh, Michael, now can I ask you a question? Yeah. You, I mean, you've been in the game, you know, virtually the same period as I do. Does that sound wacky to you? Does that sound, is that something you can relate to for yourself? I'm just curious to know how that sounds What I love about the game of golf, and you alluded to it when you came on, and you were talking about Herbert Warren Wind, and and then I think about Dan Jenkins, and I think about people like yourself, and I think the game of golf from a competitive side always has bridges from generations, from uh, from Hagen to to Sarazen to, to Jones to the great triumphant to 
Arnold Palmer to Jack Nicholas uh, and, and onward from Tom Watson all the way up to, to Tiger Woods and beyond. I think these bridges are critically, critically important. I think that we are at a time where, when there has been more burning of bridges than I've ever seen before in the game of golf. And as you aptly noted, Michael, I think it reveals uh, personal motivations that could be based on greed, very much based on ego. I think the, the most harmful thing that we have in the sport right now is we have people that are surrounded by people that have a vested financial interest in what they do instead of having someone around them that can put their arm around their shoulder and say, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to say that? Are you sure you did the right thing there? So that is concerning to me. Having said that, I think that golf, while it used to be a refuge where it was not necessarily a reflection of society on the whole, is becoming far more so a reflection of anything and everything that impacts the world of sport and more so the red state, blue state society that we seem to live in that goes even beyond the realms of below the fold. So, yeah, I think there is there is reasons for concern where I get buoyed, what I get where I get picked up, where I get excited is when it comes down to the pure competition, where all of these things fall by the wayside. And the only thing that matters is whether you can hit the shot you have to hit at the time you have to hit it and make the putt. And in that way, even even the Masters last, even though I know all these stories were swirling around the fray on, on the periphery, when it came right down to it between the ropes, we saw great competition. And yes, the competition came from players playing at different places and different mindsets and philosophies. And I loved every minute of it. So I know at the end of the day, I'm an optimist with it all. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that, that's what I was thinking. No, that is a very insightful answer. And, and I mean, you use the key word. The key word is money. You know, uh, money is a hugely corrupting factor uh, in everything. And golf's never been so awash in money. Um, and I am optimistic, too, because the game is so great. Uh, it, 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 it's survived for hundreds of years. It's never had a period like this. But the greatness of the game will always carry carry the game at the end of the day. And then one of the things I'm trying to do, uh, I'm not doing that thing where people say, oh, refer to the book. But one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is remind people that whatever they're doing, they can't take the game away from us. Um, and like people say, like like if I write about a rules dispute, like let's say Brooks Koepka's thing uh, last week, they're like, uh, oh, you know, do you play that way? Of course not. Matt, if you and I are playing a match and I nudge my ball in the fairway, and it moves, and it's. I'm going to tell you that I did it, and you're very likely going to say, who cares? Let's just play on, and we're going to say, fine, we're having a match. We're sort of making up our own rules. By the way, if you said, yeah, automatic plus all, two shots, whatever it might be, I would accept that too. But these guys can't do that. They've got to play strictly by the letter of the law because it's not fair to the rest of the field if they don't. So, like, if you think about what you just said, Matt, if you think about that Brooks Kepka situation, like they, there needs to be around other people around them and say, do the right thing here. We all saw what happened there. The caddy said five. The guy hit a five. Gary Woodland's caddy was looking right at him. So, to, And then this brief statement from the Augusta National officials saying that they denied anything happened. We saw that something happened. So really, if you're really, really, really putting yourself – you know, the Arnold thing I was talking about earlier, never putting yourself ahead of the game. 
you would have said, yes, something happened there. I'm not comfortable with it. I'm taking the two shots. And then you would have elevated the game instead of diminished the game. So, I mean, Lindsay Brooks Kepka would have won that event. Uh, and he did finish second. Um, it's troubling because we saw what we saw. We know something happened there. And the answer doesn't make sense. So anytime you're putting your, in golf in particular, and of course, there's many applications uh, to other things. If you're putting yourself ahead of the game, you're really not serving. Of course, you're not serving. You're not only you're not serving, you're hurting the game. And that, that, that is troubling, but I'm totally with you, madam. The game is, the game has an underlying greatness to it. It always will. And it will, it will always, the greatness of the game will always carry the day in the end. For a long, long time, uh, Michael Bamberger's voice has been a critically important one to the game of golf. I happen to think now that voices of veterans of, of Michael's stature are more important than they've ever been for a whole variety of reasons, some of which we touched on. Uh, you can hear his voice in, in the form of the, the pen on the paper and the parchment. Uh, the Ball in the Air is the name of his new book, and you can find it wherever fine books are sold, including... Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Michael, absolute delight to catch up with you, my friend. Oh, we wish you the very, very best uh, with the new book and look forward to Thanks, having you on man. the program again to share some insights. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Uh, folks, if you want to elevate your game to a level that, frankly, it's never been before, you can do it with DeWiz. Uh, DeWiz is a wearable device that measures your golf swing in real time, in real space. It is based on neuroscience, and it can measure your swing in a whole myriad of ways, which includes, if you want, tempo, swing playing, and more, and more, and more. Log on to dewizgolf.com for more information today. I guess, hello world, huh? <laughs> and with one subtle hello, Tiger began an amazing and unthinkable career. I've done it for 20 years now with, with Bridgestone. It allows me to play an aggressive style around the greens, and it's allowed me to win a lot of tournaments. Bridgestone Golf, proud to be part of your journey. Boyne Golf provides the ultimate world-class golf destination with 10 championship-caliber courses spanning three resorts. Centered in Michigan's northern Lower Peninsula, the courses are the products of some of the game's masters, including Robert Trent Jones Sr., Arthur Hills, and Donald Ross. From the all-inclusive vacation packages, elite instruction with the Boyne Golf Academy, tournaments, and so much more, Boyne Golf truly offers an unrivaled Michigan golf vacation experience. Just log on to boynegolf.com. This is the whiz. It tracks your swing in real time. Got it. One zero one. Gives you feedback in real time. Instead of guessing, I get the direct feedback. The whiz have really helped me to keep that consistent swing. You can go out there on your own and just hit balls and it'll fix your golf game. Transition on plane. The whiz. Sold exclusively at thewizgolf.com. <laughs> Easy now. Find your happy place. The PGA Tour Superstore. It's all in the hips. Where every swing is possible. Just tap it in. Yes! <laughs> Find all the latest gear, apparel, and personalized club fittings. Is this goodbye? 
We've only just begun. Shop with the pros at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. Nothing feels quite like hitting a PXG iron. That's because we use hollow body construction coupled with the thinnest club face in golf and a vibration-absorbing polymer. These technologies make hitting our irons feel soft as warm butter on a hot biscuit and create a bigger sweet spot, which means more forgiveness, better distance, and lower scores. Play PXG and see how sweet, real power, and incredible forgiveness can be. PXG, nobody makes golf clubs the way we do, period. Zero Friction introduces the Wheel Pro Push Cart Golf Bag with its revolutionary three-in-one design, supportive legs that spring into action, a comfort grip handle with three locking positions, accessories for the modern golfer enhanced by seven pockets for more storage, and removable all-terrain wheels which slide right into place. The new Zero Friction Wheel Pro Golf Bag checks every box for every golfer. Push, carry, or cart. The decision is yours thanks to Zero Friction. Head to ZeroFriction.com today. Welcome back to the Fairways of Life Show. Pleasure to have you company. Really interesting to get a chance to speak to both Jim Gallagher Jr., five-time winner on tour, and Michael Bamberger, a legendary golf writer, and get these different perspectives on on where we stand. You know, I for my part, just to kind of finish the thoughts with all this, I actually think that golf is going to figure out its way. And I'm not saying that golf is lost. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this conversation about the professional game and the, and the, the, the multiple leagues, if you will. Uh, first of all, I don't have a problem with that. And the reason I don't have a problem with that is right now there are multiple leagues in the world. I mean, if you looked at a World Golf Championship event, that was, that's a co-sanctioned event by seven different tours. Right? And even, those, even though the World Golf Championships are going away, they've been around for decades. How many WGC events did, did Tiger win, Dom? I, if memory serves me, I think it was 26. I don't know if it's that many, but it's a lot. I'll well, do, do a search. You're, do, look, look it up there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm telling you, I think it's 26. If it's 26, you owe me $10,000 cash in a brown envelope. <laughs> so I think that golf is going to find its way, and, and – I, I do have some sense. I'd be curious what uh, what what the people think. I do have some sense that at some point, you were way off. <laughs> what is it? What do you got? I was going to use the number, and I was going to be right. I should have said it. Damn it! I should have guessed because I would have been right. It's eighteen. I don't know about you. That. Said twenty six. I think he won the. Divide. I think he won the Bridgestone <laughs> Invitational eighteen times. <laughs> so anyway, you know what's really funny. What? Is is if you think about that in terms of what that was like, like you and Michael Bamberger were talking about the old days, like that question you just asked me in the old days, right? Like if it was like 1989, like how many times did uh, blah, blah, win this thing? You would have had to like go get an encyclopedia and like look in the index would have taken a half an hour. Now I'm just like, boop, 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 and it's just like right in front of me. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, di- the difference with Michael, where, where Michael was talking about a lot of stuff journalistically, and he was saying, remember when this happened, remember that happened, like Greg Norman and Mark O'Meara, you know, debate and so forth, is that, you know, I, I w- came from the equipment side of the business, and then I was on the green grass side of the business running, running uh, courses. And when I started doing radio, it was 2006 
which which was XM Radio at the time uh, with the Fairways of Life show, which was a weekly interview show where the motivation of why we started this show to begin with was I felt like the legends were getting on in years. Now, this is going back how many years are we talking about now? Four, 17 years ago? And I felt like the legends of the game were kind of getting on in years, and I really didn't feel like there were enough places where they had a chance to tell their own story, you know, in any medium, not to mention a broadcast medium, but there just, just, just wasn't enough outlets like that. And now when you look back over that time period, you look at how many of the legends that we have lost, and these were people that we had on multiple times and or got to know very well and, and dare say considered friends, um, I'm very proud of what we did from that standpoint. But what I'm saying is when he, when he started asking me about specific things, like I do remember Greg Norman and, and Mark O'Meara sparring, but I couldn't have told you what the event was. I'll be honest with you. I couldn't. But I didn't want to interrupt his story. And he was like, do you remember, Matt? Do you remember? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I do, but I didn't fully. The, you know what I mean? The details. So, and, and he's been, he's been doing it longer than me. So you have, you have a different resource to kind of go to. And he talked about our mutual friend, Jaime Diaz and Jaime's, Jaime's, I think five or six years older than, than Michael. Uh, so he'd been, he's been doing it even more and seen, seen even more people. And, and yeah, it is, it is a different world. Like, you know, when we talk about how and where people get their golf Entertainment, which is what I look upon it as. Whether they get it from, I mean, you tell me, uh, no laying up, uh, foreplay pod, whatever it is. My, my sense is that if you are consuming golf, however, whenever, wherever you get it, if you are consuming golf that's good for all of us it, it to me it really doesn't matter how someone finds their joy with with what they consume i don't really care as long as you consume as long as you are happy as long as you are are, are feeding at this trough of golf great so i've a, i've a different opinion on that when it comes to a debate about what is journalism today, you probably could tell in that last conversation that I had was I'm not just talking about golf. I'm not particularly worried, as you could tell, about golf in terms of how our messages are, are crafted and, and, and sent forth. I do think as you move beyond golf into the world of sport, but Definitely beyond that, and it's a much bigger world outside our world of, of golf, certainly, but it's even a much bigger world outside the world of sport, as big as sports are globally. You, you, we now live in a world where what you hear, how you hear it, how it's crafted, what they hope to impart in terms of what goes into your mind and what you come away with is definitely done partisan and with an agenda many, 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 many times. So from, from the purity of what journalism is supposed to be, in my mind, 
which is your job is to get the story from all sides to present the information in a way that it is digestible and then allow people to come to their own conclusions. To me, that's the purity of, of real journalism. I don't think that, again, to use that same word, purity, I don't think the purity of that pathway exists at least to the same proportion that it used to. And I will, I tell you this every day when I, when I have the honor of talking to you, that I may be naive. And I suspect that I am, but I also think that's part of the reason why I'm such an optimist in life is that I, I have a natural inclination to block negativity. Uh, maybe, maybe that's always been the case. I mean, I, I, could, I could look back on, on, on history and, and, and go back to uh, the Civil War era and before with the, with the emergence of, of Abraham Lincoln into his position of, of leadership and ultimately the presidency and his assassination. And if you think that politics is dirty today, go back and, and do some research and read some of the headlines and stories and the manners in which those stories were written on one side or the other for or against a particular candidate back in those days. So I, I, would, I would concede readily uh, that that I'm probably wrong. I, I should probably should I should probably change the the name of the show to I'm probably wrong. Dot dot dot. Uh, but I enjoy I enjoyed having Michael on. I enjoy the different perspectives and and as I told you, I think that the voices, all voices, be they young, be them old, they they are critically important to have in the mix. Uh, and on, and as you know, because it's it's a it's one of the building blocks of this show. I love to hear from people that were either authors of or witnesses to history. Because I I do think that history and its significance uh, is something that and and maybe it's always been a case of society at every at every time and place. But I think that history tends to get cast aside, tends to get brushed aside. Uh, And I think it's important. For what it's worth, I may be wrong. Thank you so much for your company today, folks. It, it was indeed a delight. Uh, when we're with you tomorrow, we have more guests on the way. Uh, I want to go through the how uh, and what's for in terms of where you can get all your coverage. Because remember, this week we have the Zurich Classic of New Orleans, a team competition coming up with the LPGA Tour as a major championship starting Thursday. Uh, the, Liv is playing in Australia. The, their air times are a little bit complicated, so I want to make sure that, that you guys know what they are in case you want to catch that coverage as well. Uh, mostly, I hope that you guys are well and that we have the pleasure of enjoying your company again. Until then, goodbye for now.